0: Welcome to another Gary Anderson F1 show. I'm Ed Straw, and as always, I've got the star of the show with me, Gary Anderson, a race-winning F1 technical director and someone with probably more years of experience in F1 than he cares to remember. Uh, Today, we're going to do something a little bit different as a a train goes past my hotel room window. You might be able to hear that in the background. Uh, No opening question, because instead... Gary was putting the question to you the listeners on Twitter and you can find Gary there on at Gary Anderson f1 he asked for your suggestions for ways to make f1 more exciting after a after a pretty boring Spanish Grand Prix. We had a huge number of responses I'm sorry to say we won't be able to get through everything and mention everyone, but we're, we've read through them all and we're going to try and get through as many as we can and we've we've grouped a lot of the suggestions together, so some are quite small some are some are quite Big ones. But first up, Gary, uh, Andreas Johansson simply responded saying, but Gary, it wasn't boring.
1: Well, you know, it depends on how you look at it. I look at it as um, an average person sitting down to watch a TV programme, an exciting TV programme. They're not really interested in motorsport um, because there's such a small percentage of people that are really, you know, into motorsport. You have to attract the casual viewer. And the casual viewer switched on at lap three um, he'd probably switch off by lap five. Might might hang on to lap ten because nothing really happened. Yeah, there's the odd midfield battle, you know. And, and we know that 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 two racing cars racing each other is the right thing to see because the director goes to it. So that must mean that the director thinks that he wants to see racing. He wouldn't move away from Lewis Hamilton going around at the front if the people that were racing halfway down the field weren't sh- making a better show out of it. So. We can all respect Lewis Hamilton, we can all respect Mercedes for the efforts they put in and, you know, the job they're doing. It's fantastic. But for Mr. Average viewer who wants to see an exciting TV program that he can switch on and not switch back off again, Sunday's race was um, mundane, to say the least, and boring probably is the right word for it.
0: Yeah, uh, it's hard to argue with that. I mean, I'll, I'll, watch, I'll watch the most boring Grand Prix till the end of time, ultimately, because there's always something interesting. But we have to be aware there's a much bigger, wider world out there. Let's work through some of these ideas. So inevitably, some of the suggestions are broader than others, some very specific. Let's start off with a very specific one. Chris Everill says, take away carbon brakes and fit steel brakes to increase braking distances. Uh, Mark Johnston, Leo O'Dwyer, and an account called Pacific Sim Racing also support that idea. So steel brakes...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an op- an opportunity to do something there. Um, I, I don't actually think it, it will make much difference because no matter what you've got in the car, everybody will use them to the limit, and that's the problem. You know, at the minute the limit into turn one in Barcelona is you hit the brake pedal at about 80 metres with the carbon brakes. So you put steel brakes on it, it probably wouldn't be quite as efficient. You know, steel brakes are pretty good nowadays, but they probably wouldn't be quite as efficient, and you'd hit the brake pedal at hundred meters or hundred and ten meters, but everybody would be doing that, so it's still going to be a percentage that you're going to have to take out of the car you're trying to overtake you know and, and while everybody's at the same level it's it's you know it's very difficult to get that percentage you know let's say a hundred meters you know the car's five meters long, so to go from the the nose of your car being at the back of one car to the nose of your front car being equal with the uh, with the nose on the other car, that's 5% later you've got a brake to, to do that. So, you know, those type of manoeuvres have to be what you call a block pass. You just have to put the car in the way so the other guy can't turn in. And that's all okay, but then the ch- there's a very, very good chance of touching each other um, because the guy that's on the inside of the corner would be semi-out of control. He would be hoping that the other guy doesn't turn in on him. And if you do touch, then the, the, the penalty is higher than the than the reward. So there's nothing entices you to actually break later and try to pass somebody. And as I say, if you change from carbon to steel, the efficiency will be a little bit less, but not very much. And you'll still
0: be using them at 100%. Yeah, I remember asking Patrick Head, uh, the, the, the Williams legend, about that, because Alex Sonardi ran steel brakes, experimented with them in, in 99. With Williams because he preferred them, and actually uh, Head said he was surprised by just how good they were. They weren't actually that much worse. So uh, yeah, I think you've got a point there. Now a slightly left field idea here: we have Brad Miles suggesting a Joker lap to take place within each ten to fifteen lap window, like rallycross. David Gossett also likes this one. Of course, that's just an extra short little section of track that's a, that's a little bit longer, so you do lose time and potentially track position. In a rallycross race, you use it once because they're really short and sharp, but you do it multiple times in F1. So let's say for a 66-lap Spanish Grand Prix, you might do it four or five times. Slightly left-field idea and might need a bit of circuit work, but do you like that one? Well, GP have adopted that, really, or
1: the GP Racing Series, um, Moto3 and Moto2. Um, they have a, a penalty loop as such. So if you if you go off the track more times than you should do, you have to ride around the penalty loop. Um, so it's a slight, slightly longer lap. Um, but the, at least one thing about that is the penalty is is there immediately. So for a driver who, like like Perez at the weekend, who let's say was 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 um, got a penalty for not uh, adhering to the blue flags, his penalty would be a uh, one one run around that penalty loop. So putting it in as a as a sort of thing where you know you have to do it four times a race or five times a race, I think that gets a little bit gimmicky. But I would love to see the running order at the end of a race being the running order. And even if that means, you know, a drive through the pits, which actually is, is too too much of a time penalty, um, it's it's one of those sort of things. Maybe if it was a drive through the pits, it would stop people doing things, but then you have to police it correctly. You have to make sure that if a guy goes off the track, it's policed correctly so that in the end, it's the same for everybody. Uh, I think the penalty works okay for MotoGP. Uh, I'm not sure it would work completely for formula one but as i say i would love to see penalties put in place immediately and, and that especially through qualifying because you know if a driver blocks another driver in q3 and q1 um that driver that did the blocking can get through to q2 at the expense of the other driver who got blocked so you never recover from that situation um so especially in qualifying i think the penalty has to be immediate uh, i know it can be fairly draconian but you know at the end of the day, the day, stewards. Uh, the officials are there to make those decisions and they should make them very, very quickly. They make them at some point in time, but they need to make them very quickly. And again, during the race. So perhaps a penalty loop for that, but I don't think for a normal routine thing, it would actually, it would actually be beneficial.
0: Yeah, I must admit, I, I think it might be a little bit anti-racing as well, because if you know every people have to take it, I think it could be counterproductive. Well, now we've got an idea that was implemented and then abandoned a few years ago. Uh, Carlos Bialato says, take out all the driving aids from radio. So, only allow the, the pit board, no radio communications, but for, for security reasons. Josh B., Gary Turner, Dan Johnson, Chavis Elios, Gary Ogano, Josh Puget, Andy P. all like that one. So, a lot of support for, for the radio ban. But of course, this was tried and abandoned a, a few years ago. But this is all about the driver driving the car alone and unaided, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the regulations in the rule book drive the car, the driver must drive the car alone and unaided. So, anything that comes across from the engineer to the driver. It, there's only one reason for it, and that's to help the driver understand what's going on. Um, so I, I don't disagree with banning the radio. I don't know how you go about doing it. Um, I, I, My personal opinion would be to um, to not have as many de- data channels for the engineer to look at during the race. So you you end up with a situation where the engineer doesn't have as much information. So they, it's always hard to police these sort of things because they are very difficult within electronics to, act to get on top of it completely. But I am sure that you could come up with a system where the data gets locked away. They'll still have it after the race, but not during it. So the, the driver couldn't, or the, the engineer couldn't tell the driver, look, your front tires are getting too hot, because he wouldn't know about it. Um, the only thing you know about is the, is the reliability channels. And as I say, you could probably come up with 10 of them, water temperature, oil temperature. You can even look at, at generally at tyre um, pressure, maybe across the rear axle and across the front axle. So if you get a puncture, you can see you've got a puncture, but you don't know what tyre it is, and you don't know whether the, the pressures are building up too much in one tyre as opposed to the other one. So you can look at all fours as one unit and make, an, make a, um, a pressure reading from there. So you, there is ways of doing that. I think the only way you would do it is to stop the engineer having the information um, and let the driver drive the car alone and unaided, as it's called. And I would completely agree to that. But i say it has to be done, I think, from withholding the data until the chequered flag comes down.
0: Yes, and I think the reason that that also, looking at the radio band specifically, failed was that it was introduced slightly cack-handedly. So they created this engine formula whereby teams had set it all up, that the drivers have to make lots of inputs and that kind of thing, then suddenly taking it away. Whereas if you were to say, for example... OK, for year X, this is coming in a few years down the line. They'll have time to adapt to it and it'll seem uh, seem less stupid. But uh, now free practice, the amount of that, there's there's quite a lot of support for this. Loads of people have thrown in uh, cutting back uh, practice as part of their manifestos, for including F1, uh, improving F1. Rather, Cactus Jack is among those saying less practice. Josh Folks, hello, Josh. Used to used to work with Josh. Uh, he says less practice as well. At Robo, Josh B likes that. Loads of you suggested this. Now we will see this at Imola this year, won't we? When there's only one 90 minute free practice session, but this seems to me connected to the point you were making about the data. Just give the teams less opportunity to learn and and understand. So there's more variables and unknowns.
1: Yeah, more variables and unknowns. I think I think at the minute we've got sort of. Uh, a double-handed sort of crisis with the coronavirus. Obviously, the teams are struggling a bit uh, financially, and obviously Liberty Media are are struggling a bit to get the finances in if they don't have the races. Um, I'm sure this year there's going to be major financial losses for somebody. I don't know who it's going to be, but it's going to be major financial losses for somebody. I don't know where you can do that, recover from that, is to cut back a bit. And, you know, having the events just a two-day event on a, a Saturday and Sunday is not wrong. I mean, it cuts one day completely out of the whole um, operation. As such, we're going to have the same cars for for 2021, basically as we got for 2020. So it's not as though you know everything's new to anybody. Um, so you could do you know a season of cutback and have two day events quite quite comfortably. It'll happen. The winner will still be the fastest car um, at the end of the end of the race weekend. Um, so I don't think you'll see any massive change in it, but it would be financially a lot better. And I think Friday, you know, even whenever the, the, the spectators can come, Friday's always a very quiet day, relatively. You know, um, and I think if you didn't have a Friday, there'd be more people there on the Saturday, percentage-wise. Um, just because it would be a short weekend and people would plan it better. But, you know, you feel as though if you don't go on a Friday, you miss something. But um, if it was just a Saturday, Sunday event, it would be it, for me. It would be a lot, you know, a lot more condensed. Um, probably, probably see a few changes, but I think the, the top teams would still come out on top.
0: But less money-making opportunities for the promoter, and therefore cheaper race hosting fee. So uh, there we go. That's that's what will probably come down to. Well,
1: uh, yes, maybe. I mean, I'm not sure that Friday is actually a big money spinner for the promoters. You know, there's, there's there's sometimes not a lot of people there. There are some, but there's not a lot of people there, and, and their overheads still the same. You know, the staff that they need and they need to pay them and all that sort of stuff. That extra staff might just might just balance itself out. To be honest, um, it doesn't it doesn't mean you couldn't have you know some some stuff going on on the Friday, but um, it it doesn't have to be sort of on the racetrack track running miles on the cars.
0: Next up, we have an idea that's used in MotoGP, and in fact, it's our MotoGP correspondent Simon Patterson is among those who suggested it. Hello, Simon. He said, "We'd love to hear your thoughts on F1 adopting a MotoGP strategy on satellite teams, and also concession status for underperformers." There's others uh, who suggest uh, token systems to allow people to carry up or restrictions on on the top teams that will will allow others to do more to to catch up with them. I guess. In very simple terms, the MotoGP concession system is a point scale for those manufacturers who are struggling. You can have a bit more testing, run more engines in a season, and then you get points based on good results, not championship points. But if you hit a certain threshold of points for top results, you lose those those concessions. So it's kind of a, a sort of self-adjusting thing. And I should say, we've got a bit of a version of this coming in next year, which is the uh, the wind tunnel and CFD uh, the aerodynamic testing restrictions. So the the higher you are in the championship, the slightly less of that you get. But yeah, the wider question of concessions and also satellite teams.
1: Yeah, you you actually said they're slightly less wind tunnel testing. I am a great fan of that. I think that's that's something that could be done. You don't want to penalise the good teams, but you know at the end of the day, we all want racing. And if you look at MotoGP, I mean, at the weekend there was a massive accident, but never mind that. You know, there was Ducati, Suzuki, KTM. Yamaha, well not Honda actually, but nearly Honda would have been there if if um, their favorite rider had been there, but you know, they're all in competition and to be honest, when Marquez isn't there, probably anybody can win. Um and that includes the privateer team like um it's it's one of these things where it's we need the grid to be solid and strong. And however you go about that, it doesn't in my book, it doesn't really matter. You give the, the, the slower teams or the less well-financed teams or whatever more opportunity to do some wind tunnel research than the top teams. As you say, it's coming in slightly next year, um, but it's it needs to be more than that. And to allow privateer teams, um, I, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't use a certain amount of, of the parts from another car. It has to be listed properly. I've always been a fan of, you know, a constructor has to be a constructor, but it's now getting silly with the cost. So I think, you know, what MotoGP are doing, MotoGP have done a lot of stuff that's right, you know, and we'll probably come to some of them in a minute or two as well. But they've done a lot of stuff that's right to make sure that everybody has an opportunity. And they're still going to be the quickest guy still wins races. So it doesn't take away from the quick guys. It just means that everybody has an opportunity.
0: And that's been great because it's allowed manufacturers like KTM and Suzuki to, to really get in, in amongst it uh, recently. Uh, now, let's have a little bit of a look at what I'm going to broadly put under the, the category of either multi-class racing or one-make racing. Uh, now, Damien Edwards says, uh, How about a 40-car grid and add the F2 field for some multi-class uh, mayhem? Loads of variations on this suggestion. Liam O'Rourke says that F2 and F3 races are so much more exciting. Because the cars are all the same. Suggestion from uh, from Sean, uh, I've only a first name says uh, put the F1 drivers in F2 cars instead. At tougher B says mix of F1 <laughs> endurance cars and MotoGP, and the winner is calculated on a handicap system. I think that one's going uh, going a, a bit extreme. But uh, Andrew Jackson says a bit like Le Mans, mix F1 and F2, have two races in one. But he does say it is pretty much that now. Anyway, so that there's two things there: multi class or. One mic.
1: Well, it's it's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Because whenever you put in cars, that are you know the F two cars are like 10, 10 seconds a lap slower in performance um, than an F one car, and and justifiably so. I mean, it's it's you know it's about I don't know how much the budget difference is, but it's massive. So at the end of the day, there they are two different disciplines, and we see that at Le Mans. But it is you know it is controlled quite well. But I don't think you know the speeds that Formula One cars go at is is quite horrendous. So I think it would be very very difficult to bring in classes. Having a, a separated field, having a privateers' championship and a and a manufacturers' championship, well, that would be okay because it would still give the privateer something to to shout about. You know, at the minute, I think um, well, it's a controversial year, but last year McLaren would have won the privateers' championship, um, and uh, and basically that could be identified by the fact that you 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 don't have your, your own works engine as such, I suppose. You know, you have to purchase an engine, or lease an engine from a manufacturer. But having the kudos of winning that championship would be, would help to pull some more money in. And then if you pull some more money and you can do a better job. And you may end up getting a, a works engine as such. And then you become a works team. So there is a mechanism, I'm sure, to, to make it look better. But on face value, it still wouldn't stop Lewis Hamilton from lapping everybody but the top three. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for the race when he laps himself. I'm not sure when that's going to happen yet, but, uh, you know, the performance is very, very good. So he might end up one day actually having to do a lap less in the race because he's lapped himself. Um, now, joking, you know, it's very difficult to have this thing. and I, But I think MotoGP do a lot of that stuff very, very well. And they think about it well. And they, and they do want the race to be a competition between all participants. And they find solutions to help the underdog, I suppose you might call it. Formula One doesn't do that. Formula One the, 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 the big boys make the rules um and they make the decisions. Whenever this the this first startup remote GP and, and the controlled ECU thing, you know, Honda fought it dramatically. And and Dorna just said, well, okay, if you don't want to play, you don't want to play. Um and they shouldn't bought into it. And the fact that the challenge is still there, it's just slightly different. Um and, and it it made the competition much better. And and then The guy that wins the race goes away after they haven't beaten people, as opposed to just having dominated it, because there's nothing as boring for the driver as well as just going around in a circle.
0: Now, the next up, we're straying into very controversial territory with engines. Now, ever since the 1.6-litre V6 turbo hybrid engines came in in 2014, They've been controversial. Lots of different versions of, of what might be possible. Uh, Ian Bergstedt said bring back the V8s because this current engine's been the cause of all the rubbish we've experienced since 2014. Gary Kilchrist suggests an engine handicap, so they all have the same power uh, uh, available. PV Jet Ski says, uh, says bring back V10s, which is uh, quite a good uh, tribute to the title of our uh, of our Classic F1 Stories podcast, actually. Leo Dwyer, again, also suggests bring back the V10s. Uh, Citrus Pucha also says bring back V10s as well, so there's kind of a, a look towards sort of the past, should we say, on engines. So, so what do you think on that, and what can be done in general with the engines?
1: Well, I, I don't think we're ever going to do anything in general, so any of that sort of stuff is probably just a waste of a waste of uh, time talking about it. But if I had a choice, you know, uh, and I was sitting here now, I would be saying the V10 was a lovely package of engine. Um, it was made a nice, a good racing car noise. Uh, It did everything right. Lots and lots of horsepower. Um, There was good ones and there was bad ones. But in general, I think being just a functional, normally aspirated engine, all the engines were a bit closer to each other than, um, than they are currently because there's so much to these engines now. It's such a big task to get everything working to its maximum at the right time. It's such a massive task. And obviously Mercedes have done it the best way possible since 2014, you know, since this rule came in, they've dominated it. So, again, as I say, if I was to change anything, that I would, I would look at the V ten, maybe limit the RPM to a respectable RPM because it's very expensive to allow 20, 22,000 RPM. So limit it to sixteen thousand or whatever, something sensible where the material technology is is at hand. Um, and if you wanted to put in a, a you know, a fuel flow situation like you got now you can do that because you can just mean that people you know you actually meet with the environmental needs of of controlling pollution um and that's all the hybrid is really it's a percentage of horsepower um that you're you're harnessing from the energy you're creating so you're that's all you're doing so you just want to be able to create a a formula i believe that has less complicated um for the people to understand, and a normally aspirated V10 would be a would be a perfect example of a really good racing car. But as I say, um, it ain't going to go that way, so I wouldn't waste any time thinking about it.
0: Yeah, there was a little bit of feedback against the the fuel flow limit as well, which is there the hundred kilogram per hour fuel flow rate, which is. Was brought in to stop massive disparities and acceleration, etc. But uh, that that's obviously tied into the same thing. Now, refueling. This is a, a popular one. Mark Stanley says bring refueling back to add multiple potential strategies into the mix. Gary Oregano says F1 needs to be a flat out sprint. So have uh, refueling to allow people to really push. Andy McGrath, Liam Charlton, Craig Berkey, Rich Stevens, they all like the idea of refueling coming back. Where do you stand on on this? I
1: really enjoyed whenever refueling was there because, as you say, it was multiple strategies. And, you know, watching Michael Schumacher driving, you know, for, with four stops or whatever during a race and driving every lap, like a qualifying lap, was a fantastic thing. Doing that currently um, with the 100 kilogram fuel limit that we have now, 105 or whatever it is, maximum fuel would obviously be a different thing because then you use a lot more fuel. Um, so your 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 changes, your deltas in, in time and performance would be a lot different. But it would ease the tyre load. Now, we've got to remember that, that, you know, whenever we're relating these tyres, these terrible tyres back to whenever, uh, you know, Bridgestone were were um, doing the job, they were doing the job with light cars. They never had a heavy car. You know, the, the refuelling was there. And when the refuelling disappeared and Bridgestone had to build tyres for, for full race distances or just single stops or double stops, they they started to fight the battle as well, just making the tyres. So the tyre task is not an easy one whenever you've got the cars, the weight they are now. I mean, there's 745 kilograms plus 100 kilograms for a race. That's 845 kilograms. You know, that's a massive amount of weight. And that's all going through the tyre as well. So the tyres are having to work hard. The downforce is probably between, you know, the last time you saw refueling, the downforce has probably doubled, if not more, um, So at the end of the day, the the tyres are working very, very hard. Refuelling would help it. But again, I want to see racing on the track. You know, we had good racing. I think we had good racing. Let's put it that way. Way back whenever we used to fill the car up with, you know, at that time what was 150, 160 kilograms of fuel. And you send it. And and away the bloke goes. And he drives to suit the car. He drives to suit the situation. You know, we still had stops for tyres because it was faster to put on fresh tyres. If you decided to do that, you didn't have to, but you know, people like Prost, you know, the professor, he would drive within his car that he had. Other people would drive the wheels off it and and pet and come out again, and the end result was, you know, the guy who made the best decisions won. And, that, and it's still exactly the same sort of formula, but uh, again, like the V10 engine, I'm, I'm not sure that refuelling will ever come back. Um, and as I say now, because of the lesser fuel in the cars, it would be actually quite different from what it was before.
0: Next, we're going to move on to quite a broad topic, which I've, I've broadly put under the heading of reducing aero. Damien Edwards says, make the cars narrower, way less downforce, and what downforce there is has to come from the, the underfloor and the car body, no wings. Motorsport Watcher says, massive reduction in aero complexity. James McKenzie says that the, the, the vision of, uh, of F1 and the space-age technology, and obviously the aero is part of this, uh, it's kind of better off in the 90s. Uh, Ed Valentine says, could you remove a high percentage of the downforce? Sergio Garcia says that reducing the aero so there's less turbulence and you can follow. Jason Ball, take the front wings off. Phil Roberts says, re- reduce the amount of intricate winglets. Tom Mallett, who I know of old, hi Tom, says just a lot less aero uh, in order to just make it easier to, to, to follow. Graham T says, get the aero grip off the top of the cars and make it easy to follow. You know, we've got so many who want, the arrow rolled back, and we should say some of this is being done in in the 2022 rules already.
1: Yes, I mean the 2022 rules are being built around the fact of of um, reducing arrows. is a strange word to use. I think that's true, but it has to be better arrow. You know, the, you'll have to take numbers down um, for sure, but you have to take the numbers down the right area. What people are saying there about you know no front wings, that's an example of of um, of what we need to do. But I think. You know, we have to look at what we see and what we see in a racing car. Um, front wings came about, I think, probably the late 60s. So it's it's one of those sort of things where I, I think you want to have a front wing in the car, but you want to have a lot less sophisticated front wing in the car. And the way to do that is to limit the amount of elements you can have. The more elements you have with the slot gaps, and the means that you just work those elements harder, the surface area where, where the airflow starts to separate you put another slot gap in there and get, re-energize the airflow. Um, and that way you can work the whole package harder. You know, for many years, people couldn't make a, a four or five element front wing work as well as a, a two or three element front wing. Because, uh, you know, immediately you sort of lose downforce by putting more slots in there. But then you have to start working the surfaces harder. And we saw that through the years where people changed. I mean, I, I was a critical of Braun in, in 2009 when they changed their front wing from being a three element to a two element. Um, and, and I think it was, you know, it was right to be critical of them because although on that day in the wind tunnel, that two element front wing gave more downforce than the three element front wing, the, the three element front wing had a wider working range. So if you had, if you had less elements, they would be less, uh, uh, not working so hard. So you have to take that into account. You know, you have to take into account the, 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 the camber of the wing and the, Sort of aspect ratio of the wing, the cord length to the height of it. Um, you'd have to limit those as well to to a level where you know you're not going to be working those surfaces as hard. Then the front wing will stay more uh, more robust in turbulent air. Um, developing the downforce from underneath the car, I'm a big fan of that because again, it's not so critical to, to turbulence. Um, it's sort of it's turbulent anyway. So by the time it gets to there. So it sorts itself out pretty well. Um, doing away with all the, lots of the you know, the barge boards, for example, now are an absolute nightmare. You know, they must cost more than, than our Jordan did in 1991 as a complete car. They're just so complicated, there's so many bits on them. They'd be gone immediately if I had anything to do with it, um, without any doubt, shadow of doubt. doubt. Um, so there's lots and lots you can do, and I think it's right, exactly right. You have to lose the downforce, We you have to make sure you lose it from the right places, and not the wrong places. And the Doing away with sophisticated aerodynamics is a way to achieve that.
0: And uh, connected to some of this simplifying of cars, there's a few people who suggested having smaller, lighter cars. We won't talk about that on this one because we've got a lot to get through. But if you look back to April the 15th, we did an episode called Can F1 Cars Be Made Smaller and Lighter, which talks about that issue in, uh, in some depth. Slightly uh, tongue-in-cheek suggestion that was made by Bernie in the past, uh, uh, Gary, sprinklers. You know, whenever we look at the races, the races
1: that have been exciting and good have been ones that there's been a bit of confusion thrown in there. Um, So if it's confusion because it happens naturally through whatever, uh, you know, the tyres at Silverstone, the problem, both race meetings at Silverstone as such, they weren't planned confusion. They were just confusing. So if you have a, a, you know, a sprinkler system and, you know, it's going to be randomly set off, I think that's a bit sort of... um, that's a bit calculated. Um, When do you do it? It's a bit like throwing the yellow flag at American racing, you know? When do they do it? Whenever they throw it out there for a paper bag being on the track, is that because they want to close the field up or is that because there is a paper bag on the track? There probably is a paper bag on the track, it's probably not going to do any harm. So that would always be one of the sort of questions about it. So I'm not a great fan of
0: artificial confusion. Talking of artificial confusion, uh, we had a few people uh, making suggestions related to the the, the Mario Kart game, which is kind of a racing game where you have all sorts of uh, things. I'm sure you've uh, seen it. So Simon Ford says power-up boxes like Mario Kart. Now, I'm going to make this slightly tongue-in-cheek suggestion slightly serious because Formula E, of course, we have attack mode where you go through the lane, which costs you a little bit of time, not dissimilar to a joker lap, but less time. Then you get an extra power uh, amount of power for a a set amount of time, which you you can use a couple of times in races. Something like that, Appeal? Uh, not to me, no. Um,
1: I, I, you know, I think we've got a situation. Formally, e, uh, you know, it's 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 fairly good argy bargy racing, uh, but that's what you have to watch it for. I think from from the gimmicks that go on, the, and again, the attack mode is one of them. I think it gets too complicated. I, I watched one the other day here, one of these six they had in Berlin, with my twelve-year-old grandson, and I tried to explain to him what was happening, and. Um, yeah, he's only twelve, but he's a fairly intelligent twelve. Uh, he takes after his granddad. Um, <laughs> joking, but um, you know it, it's quite difficult to explain it. And I, I find that trying to explain it, I was, you know, you're missing the point of of what it was all about because you you actually take it and take it to heart what what's going on, and it was so difficult to explain. Um, easy four, four minutes for whatever it is. You get four minutes for whenever you go through that that lane. You get four minutes of extra par. You know, it's what that level of extra power and all that sort of stuff is. So it's just a bit like a boost button. Um, it's, I think those again are like the, like sprinklers. You know, they're a little bit too much of a gimmick to me for for bringing into Formula One. I think there's ways that we can make the racing closer
0: um, without having to do that sort of stuff. Let's move on to the thorny issue of tyres, shall we? Loads of messages about tyres. Uh, and what could be done with tyre strategy. Alex Cox says, use three tyre compounds in the race. Janice uh, Stavroulis says, mandatory two stops. Uh, Amit Mandalia says, have a bigger gap between compound for more strategic variation. Uh, Kieran Dudson again says, three compounds. Uh, There's people talking about having tyres that you can push on. Grant Harvey uh, suggests that. Uh, Again, Suzanne Ford saying, three tyre Compounds. Andy Graham says bring in higher degradation tires because durable tires aren't good for racing. And Eddie Masson also says more degradation of, of tires. But we also have Jim Crocker saying have a tire war when people could uh, uh, could push. So there's loads of different views on on what could be done with the tires, both within what we've got and what the tires should be. I think actually tires is kind of at the heart of the problem, isn't it?
1: Tires are at the heart of the problem. And initially, without really getting you know too deeply involved in it. Um, I would take a stance that we we don't have a big enough gap between the compounds. Um, if you take Barcelona, you know that people talked about 0.7 of a second between the, 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 the Barcelona soft tyre and the medium and 1.7 seconds between the Barcelona soft tyre and the, and the hard. Um, but once the race comes and the tyres are used, that sort of becomes semi-invisible in a way. The hard tyre wasn't a good tyre in Barcelona. Um, it wasn't sort of it didn't do anything really for you Um, so at the end of the day what we saw at Silverstone 2 whenever they went one stage softer it was a very interesting solution it was on the limit Um, so if you had that as your normal normal soft tire and then moved the hard tire a bit harder and a bit more durable then you could get a difference in, in strategies I think you know, we have this compulsory uh, two compounds you have to use during the race. I, I wouldn't bring in a three-compound solution, but I would look at bringing in a two-stop solution because you don't want to be able to predict what the other guy's going to do. And if you've got a three-compound solution, you immediately know after the second stop what the other guy's got left to use and when he might pit. So you, you've got the race read quite well. Whereas if you just got a two compound you know, a two-stop solution then as long as you use, um, yeah, as long as you do your two stops, you can put on whatever compound tire you want. So it's one of these sort of situations. There's different ways of doing it. It needs to be put out on the table and, and sort of looked at. But my initial thing would be bigger gaps between the the, uh, the compounds, make sure the softer tire is genuinely nearly a qualifying tire. You know, it's, you want it to be hanging on the rims after five laps, to be, hanging off the rims after five laps, to be honest. So that you you know, you really need to do something about it. Um, you need to think about it quite closely and you you know, look after it. We've always had to look after tires. They're moaning now about looking after tires. Yes, but part of the loading up the tires and over overloading the tires is the cars are now, you know, as I say, two hundred kilograms heavier starting a race or something like that, to be honest. You know, they're right up there, 150 kilograms anyway. Um, so you know, that's like twenty percent or knocking on the door twenty percent heavier was probably, again, um, 100% more downforce than they had way back you know, in the, in the early 2000s or the late 1990s. Um, so a although tyres get a lot of criticism, it's a pretty tough job to do it. But as I say, if I was taking an instant stab at what I'd do, widen the gap between the compounds and make sure your soft tyre was a real soft tyre.
0: Uh, There's various suggestions for versions of push-to-pass. One suggestion here to have DRS available on the first lap to keep the pack together. Uh, Nigel Plank says a solar cell that gives a KERS-like speed boost uh, shows a commitment to renewable energy, good for overtaking too. Uh, At Dwyer on Twitter says uh, bring back KERS, overtaking assist and can be used strategically. So loads of these ideas. Kevin Fitzgerald says replace DRS with a push-to-pass system. And we've had various versions of, of modifying the, the, the DRS use so that it can be used in, in different ways, used when you're further behind, used freely, et cetera. So what do you think about the general principle of push-to-pass and the way DRS interacts with that?
1: Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a push-to-pass. Um, DRS, as you say, interacts a little bit with that. You get within a second and you can use it on, on certain parts of the track um i I think that I'd probably do away with those certain parts of the track um, and I would say you could use it wherever you want it to and it's up to the driver I mean if he wants to use it to crash that's fine He just go ahead and do it um most drivers will use it to survive and to to, to try to catch another car um so if you're just taking DRS as a, as a simple thing it's not someone I like because I think it's an overtaking aid that means um, you're taking away the 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 need for the driver to overtake, and 99.9% of the time it's an overtaking aid that lets you pass going down a straight as opposed to pass by going faster into or through a corner or whatever. Passing into and through a corner is pretty difficult to do, but that's the task. That's the task in hand. You know, that's what the f- smaller formulas have to do. They don't have the luxury of all this sort of stuff. F3 and F2 do now, but that's not. that doesn't say it's right. It's just followed on from Formula 1. But you get into your first winged car... Uh, to go racing Formula Four, or whatever it is, it doesn't have that luxury. You have to drive the car, and you have to try to overtake if you're if you're stuck with it. So there's none of those benefits in the lower formula, and the lower formula should be about being used to create to look at good drivers, um, and they are you know used for that because people do look and see if drivers are aggressive enough and do overtake. Um, so DRS, in my book, um, I would allow it to be used. But a certain t- amount of times during a race, um, because that way, you know, whether once a lap, twice a, once for every lap the race is like Barcelona sixty-six laps, so you have got sixty-six times to use it, or you got one hundred and twenty times, to use it, or whatever. So you use it where you fancy using it, whenever you fancy using it. If you want to catch somebody up using it, fine, go ahead. If you want to try to overtake somebody with it, well, you need to save a few times for it. But give the driver the choice. Give the driver the. The the need to make that decision, Um, and again, if it's a push to pass thing, we've talked a lot about this uh, qualifying modes. You know, if you do go to a race mode, then the cars could have a, a push to pass qualifying mode that lasts for, you know, X seconds, X times per race as well. So there's there's lots of little things you could do there that would help a driver, that would give a driver a bit of assistance to overtake. But if I had my way, it would be simply: this is your car, this is what you race. Um, this is the engine power you can have during this race. This is the wing level and you've got to get on and race it and you've got to overtake each other because once you start to have to do that in a corner or braking or whatever, the teams will try to make the car better for that sort of occasion. Um, as I say, if, if drivers do it, you know, do overtake somebody around a corner or whatever, they're 99% sure they'll come on the radio and say, what do you think of that? That was good, wasn't it? You know, They enjoy it as much as we enjoy it. And so, But the responsibility's not there now. They'll just wait until the other guy's tyres are getting a bit fed up with life um, and overtake then, or, as I say, use a DRS down the street, which I'm not a big fan of.
0: There's a bit of criticism of circuits, of course. What is called the circuit to barcelona Catalonia, now isn't always a classic. Ernest Mathewson says stop racing at boring tracks like Barcelona, Monaco and Hungary. Monaco and Hungary I quite like. Uh, also... Various people saying, yeah, Danny says re- remove Catalonia from the calendar. Uh, Richard Wiseman, the, the master archivist, says uh, all future racing in Barcelona should return to a revived Monterey Park street circuit. That would spice things up a bit. But, yeah, circuits do play a part, don't they? It's no coincidence. Barcelona has never been a great circuit for racing, certainly not for quite a long time.
1: No, it hasn't. And, again, it's you know it's the long corners that hurt it. Um, whenever you get behind another car in a fast corner, you just can't you can't follow them closely enough. Um, and also the long corners when you get behind like turn four or turn five you get stuck behind somebody there you know it just means that you, you you lose too much front end in the car and it just understeers too much um that's just the aerodynamics though the circuit itself it's a fantastic challenging circuit i think and and i think it should be pat on the back for being that that challenging a circuit you know it's got everything you want slow corners fast corners Curb hopping, all that sort of stuff, and and that's why the teams like to go there testing because it's Mister Harvey's track. Um, unfortunately, the, you know it does prove that that the fastest cars end up at the front because they are the best cars, um, and Barcelona sort of hurts from that bit. It's, it's one of one of these things. You know, you can change the tracks forever. Um, we have what we have. If you want a, a track that's 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 able to pass on. You have a slow corner onto a big straight and a slow corner off it. So you've got no aerodynamic influence getting onto the straight. You can follow, or a very little aerodynamic influence. So you can follow a car pretty closely. And at the end of that straight, you get got a, a, a very tight corner, which means you just can't, um, you can break, outbreak somebody or try to outbreak somebody, but without an aerodynamic penalty. So, but it still won't work. It doesn't, it doesn't work, um, in general, you know, it's not as easy as that.
0: There's just a, a, a loose category that I've called back to basics, which loads of people have come up with all sorts of versions of. Mike Turnbull says, you know, back to basics for the days when drivers spinning out was a regular occurrence. Manual gearboxes, reduce aero cars moving around, more drivers become heroes, not robots uh loads like gary uh or i can know we've mentioned before is uh has has got in on that act as well james Gornall, b t c c driver who i also remember uh being uh doing some quite good performances in, in Formula Renault UK back in the day on a shoestring budget. Uh, says limit power steering, assistance dramatically, remove paddle shift, manual sequential, reduce aero, get rid of Pirelli tyres, reduce car size. So this back to basics thing comes in, uh, it covers a lot of the things we've, we've covered. John Davis, simpler aerodynamics, less expense, less overall downforce, can't coach drivers, more emphasis on skill. Mark Paul says electronics are taking the human element away. Andrew Kearney says bring back the DFV. You'll enjoy that because you like putting uh, lifting up DFEs and putting them in vans that was a key part of you getting a job in the first place Uh, but I think that this brings together a lot of what we've talked about but I think probably that the key message there is people want to to see the driver at the heart of it the driver still is at the heart of it really and it's it's very hard to drive Formula One cars quickly but I think it's the fact that it doesn't show and maybe that's the reason why MotoGP Works quite so well because you can see everything the rider's doing and they do look like superheroes. I can understand why people look at, at Formula One and think it looks a little bit too straightforward.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. I agree with, you know, 99.9% of everything those people are saying about the size of the cars and bringing back this, bringing back that. But we, we can't go back in time, you know, deal with paddle shifts, all that stuff. It, it's never going to happen. So we, we all agree that it would be great to be able to have cars that. Probably broke down now and again now and again, not that often, you know Barcelona's a typical example twenty cars started the racing, and, and one failed you know the clerk didn't didn't make it for whatever the reason was um that's you know that the reliability is phenomenal it, with the cars as complicated as they are these days, so that's a massive part of it and you know going doing away with the paddle shift and doing all that sort of stuff that's that's all about trying to bring back unreliability um I don't think we should do that. I would still love to see twenty cars um, all comfortably on the lead lap at the end of a race at Barcelona, all comfortably maybe within half a lap of each other, or you know, as I say, on the lead lap at least. But to lap everybody up to third is is not, you know, that's not competition. That's not right. Um, that, that's you know, that's dominance. Nothing against Mercedes for being dominant because it's fantastic. They've gone out with a set of regulations that we currently have, and they've done what they've done. Red Bull did it before them. Ferrari did it before them. So, you know, it's not, it's not a new thing. It's been happening. No matter what the formula, what the regulations, what the engine formula was, there's always been a team that's had that bit extra, got that bit more out of it for whatever reason. And that's a driver and team combination. But I do genuinely believe that right now it's becoming a higher percentage team and slightly less percentage driver. As you say, the driver still does a fantastic job. I mean, there there is nothing easy about driving a Formula 1 car. But on the way there, I just genuinely think the percentage has has slid a bit the wrong direction in my book. I want to see the driver having to make these decisions about overtaking, um, about how he goes about when his pit stops are, you know, all that stuff. Um, You just want to see the driver having to make those decisions. And the odd time, they'll probably make the wrong decision. The odd time, they might make the right decision. But in the middle there, there's a window. uh, That's a window of opportunity. For a mistake to be made and others, others to benefit. And that's what we want to create. So, just, so it's not such a routine. I mean, by the end of lap one in Barcelona, I was pretty 99% sure I could have predicted the podium. I'm, I'm sure everybody was. That's wrong. That's completely wrong. You know, Last five laps, OK, because that's where you're going and you're cruising home. It'd be great if it's the last lap, like Silverson was on a couple of occasions or two laps from the end. We didn't know who was going to win it. But at the end of the day, being able to predict the podium from the end of lap one is a a bit scary, really, to be honest.
0: And the last one we'll have time to get to is the thorny issue of reverse grids. We have talked about that in the past, so just very quickly cover this one. But Sam Rogers says reverse grid using previous race results and have qualifying still, but with half points for it. James Franklin says, as well as restricting practice, you could have... Uh, yeah, reverse grid sprint race based on championship order. James Lawrence saying reverse grid sprint race as well. Stephen Beatty, Fraser Macefield all talking about various forms, whether it's F2, F3 style. James Lawrence, Marty like lo- loads of people uh, su- suggesting various versions uh, of this. So, do you think that's something that, that could have been revisited? Because it was floated, but Mercedes didn't like the idea.
1: Uh, Surprised there, are you? I um Mercedes wouldn't like that. Uh, you know, as again, there's many, many ways of doing stuff. And, and as I keep saying, all we're trying to do is put stuff on the table so people might think about it or consider it. Numbers or the the ways of doing it and all that stuff need a lot of attention before you actually do it. But simply putting it, if you did a reverse grid race um, with the championship reverse order, so, you know, Lewis Hamilton at the minute would be starting in the back row, um maybe you have to redo the points back a bit further, you know, so that there is points available. There's maybe things that have to go with it to make it work correctly. But at the end of the day, if a if a team, let's say Ferrari or any team struggles at the beginning of the season, um, as Alfa Romeo are, as Ferrari are, as Haas are, as Williams are as such, you know, they end up getting a bit of an opportunity to pull a few points back in again um, for when they do get it better. Is that handicap on the rest? If that's regulation, no, it's not. You know, the the, the the race driver who could start, the Lewis Hamilton who could start 20th in Barcelona and come through and be on the podium or even win the race um, is out there. You know, it it might be tough, might be more difficult than it is now, but the race driver who starts on pole position, dominates and laps everybody up to third, um, Well, is that the challenge a racing driver should be going through? He's on a, as he he himself said, he was in a different zone. You know, he was just going through the, the motions of driving the race car in his own little world, in his own little world. And it just ends up being one of those situations where he needs to, you know, it needs to be more challenging. And I think he would enjoy it being more challenging. A real hard battle race with him, Verstappen, you know Alonso next year, maybe, or whoever, um, would be a great thing. To be honest, you know, it's um, it's important that we do that.
0: Well, that's ultimately all we want, isn't it? Great racing, you know. Even a even a race like Barcelona, while we said it's boring, it's still fascinating, as it always is. And a brilliant drive from Hamilton, but we just want to see it there for everyone and really accessible so uh so lots of ideas and thanks so much for everyone's suggestions on that sorry if we couldn't get to all of you and and mention all of you but we've we've got got a big folder full of about ten thousand words worth of ideas so uh, hopefully we've we've covered most of the ground i think next week we might do a bit of a a bit of an ask gary anderson so if, if anyone's got any questions for gary fire them at, at Gary Anderson F1 on Twitter or at me at Edstraw F1 on, on Twitter or our, any of the races social media channels will uh, cover some of the, uh, the questions arising from this and also some of the uh, the wider topics of the F1 season so far so thanks very much Gary thanks for uh, your attempt to solve Formula One's problems as, uh, as ever and we'll be back next week hopefully with uh, lots of questions from everyone